0: I chose for the scripture reading this morning those particular verses at the end of chapter 20 to, uh, I'm not going to lie, to get you kind of confused. <laughs> uh, I wanted to pique your interest into this chapter only because I would say that these last couple of verses of chapter 20 are some of the weirdest in the Bible. Uh, you have this uh, prophet ...who goes to his neighbor, it says, maybe a fellow student of the prophets, as it says there... ...and he asks him to punch him in the face. And when his friend doesn't oblige and give him a good sock on the jaw... ...the the first prophet actually prophesies that you're going to be eaten by a lion now. Which seems rather harsh, which seems rather uh, serious... ...seems rather like an overreaction for not giving me a good punch in the face then he finally does find someone who will oblige maybe he had a reputation i don't know He finds someone who had hit him in the face and then he goes and he disguises himself along the road where he knows the king of Israel, Ahab, is going to walk by. And he disguises himself as a war veteran. And he has this very curious exchange about this weird story. And then at the end of this exchange, Ahab goes back to his palace in Samaria, as it says in the King James, heavy and displeased. Or perhaps you have weighed down. He's burdened by these words he's just been told. It's a very... Strange, very puzzling scene, one that uh, we would do well to ponder. It, it, perhaps you're trying to figure out what's happening here. It, I think actually this scene is very reminiscent of chapter 13. And you don't have to turn back there, but if you remember chapter 13, you have multiple prophets going to and forth and having exchanges with kings. And you have a lion eating a fellow prophet for seemingly an innocuous reason. And, and, and it's, so we have this other little chapter here, which gives us another really puzzling sort of thing to kind of work through. How should we make sense of this? Well... Uh, we should, uh, it would be our, our duty, I would say, to examine the first verses that precede this, which will give us a clue on how to interpret this very strange happening. So we're going to walk through uh, the first 34 verses of chapter 20 because we have this amazing, I think, truth that comes to the surface as we see what transpires here in this particular moment of history. The historian of kings leaves the narrative that we've been spending a lot of time on, that being the Elijah and Elisha narrative. He leaves that for a moment and he goes back to sort of uh, catch us up to date on what's been going on with Ahab, the king of Israel at this point. And we find him in a very, very troubling situation. His kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, is under siege by Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Notice verse 1 of chapter 20. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his host together. And there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. This king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, and this coalition of thirty-two other kings... A huge, massive fighting force is on its way to Samaria in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, to overtake it. And Ben Hadad, of course, seeing himself as not just a really powerful king, but seeing himself as a god, sends a very foreboding message to Ahab, stating as such. Notice verse 2 And he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city. And said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine. Thy wives also and thy children, even the goodliest, are mine. So he sends this ultimatum. I'm the big bad king of Syria. And all your stuff, it's actually mine. So just give it to me. <laughs> very pompous, very proud, very arrogant statement from this king. Also, I think as curious as this is just a side note. As you know, we see from scripture, one of the most common things for a prophet or for God himself to say is what? Thus saith the Lord. And you can know that whatever follows that little preface there will be declarative and authoritative. And notice, this is exactly the type of wording that Ben Hadad is said to have said. Thus saith Ben Hadad. He's giving himself the air of authority. He says, all your stuff it's mine. All your goodliest treasures, if you will, they're mine. So just give them to me. <laughs> and then perhaps feeling the weight of the fact that there's not just Syria outside of his door. Knocking, wanting all these things for himself. But 32 other kings and their armies. Uh, Ahab just rolls over. Look at verse 4. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine. And all that I have. He displays just nothing but cowardice. And this, no less, from the king of Israel, the king of God's chosen people. Yes, there's been much disruption, much upheaval, as we've noted in the history of Israel up to this point, and with the divisions and all the wars that are going on internally. But as we've noted too, that God has never yet left his people. Yet even still when faced with this very formidable opposition. The king of Israel doesn't bank on his faith. On the on the faith that he should have. What does he do? He rolls over. He says yeah sure everything that you want you can have. And so hearing this. Hearing this very spineless response from the king of Israel, ben hadad then ups the ante. He says, no, basically, I'm going to see how much I can get out of them. Notice verse 5. The messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh ben hadad saying, Although I have sent it to thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children. Yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever be pleasant in thine eyes, they shall take, they shall put it in their hands and take it away. (laughs) So he's changed the deal now. The deal is now altered. The first deal is just whatever you want to give me as sort of a bartering agreement, that'll be fine. Now it's, we're going to come in and you're going to have my people, you're going to let my servants have free reign to just pillage and plunder whatever they want. Whatever you really are after to protect, those are the things we're going to target. You can see the, the arrogance soothing out of this king of Syria. But apparently Ahab does have a backbone. Because this is where he draws the line. Notice verse 7. He calls his elders together. He he tries to tell them what's been going on. We have the situation. Look at verse 7. The king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said. Mark I pray you and see how this man seeketh mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold. And I denied him not. I didn't stop him. And the elders and all the people said unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Wherefore he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that thou didst for did send for to thy servant at the first I will do, but this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. So they finally sort of stick up for themselves. We will agree to, uh, we will acquiesce to your first sort of demands because of the overwhelming authority that you display with your armies and all that stuff. But this other thing we cannot do. We have a sense of patriotism after all. We are Israelites after all. So they take a stand. And this, as you might expect, doesn't sit very well with Ben-Hadad. Not at all, in fact. Notice verse 10. And Ben-Hadad sent unto him and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me." (laughs) You see, this rejection of his ultimatum is not just a bad negotiation in his eyes. It's a rejection of his deity. Then Hadad is his people's God. And he says, "Uh, I can have whatever I want. And if you don't give it to me, then I'm going to crush you. He sounds just like a spoiled little king. And essentially, that's what his words mean. Basically, his threat to Israel is, when I'm through with you, there won't even be enough dust to fill my people's hands. That's how obliterated you will be when I'm through with you. You can see just how offended he is. (laughs) And then Ahab gives this really remarkable response in verse 11. To this very, very destructive taunt from the king of Syria. Notice Ahab and the king of Israel says in verse 11. Answered and said, tell him, let's not him that girdeth on his armor boast himself as he that putteth it off. Which might be a confusing way to say. But it's basically the Old Testament version of don't count your chickens before they hatch. That's essentially what he's saying to this king, this very formidable king who has 32 armies behind him. And Ahab says, boasting means nothing until you're taking the armor off after battle. Those were his words. You can boast as long as you want, Ben-Hadad, when you're putting it on prior to war. But it only means anything if you boast afterwards. Very strong exchange. Maybe you find it kind of boring. It's just two kings going back and forth. Having this political and bureaucratic argument with each other. But here, this is where things get a little bit interesting. Because in verse 12, he is frustrated. Ben-Hadad is. So he commands all of his armies to be set in array. That is, set in array against the city. Notice verse 12. And it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard this message. As he was drinking, he and the kings in the pavilions that he said unto his servants, Set yourselves in array, and they set themselves in array against the city. So they're ready for war. They're ready to just make a name for themselves. We can be done with this supposed puny Israelite, this little fighting force. It's time to show them who is boss. At least according to Ben-Hadad. Meanwhile... Ahab and company, notice who comes into the room. Notice they salute a very unexpected guest. Notice it says in verse 13, And behold, there came a prophet unto King Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Now, this to me is amazing. Again, because we have to pause and really think about what's going on. Ahab, has he ever displayed any semblance of following the words, the commands of Yahweh up to this point? Not at all. He's done the opposite of that. He's gone his own way. married Jezebel invited paganism to be part of the culture of Israel to this point. He has rejected all things Yahweh up to this point. And notice who comes into the room. A prophet of Yahweh. This is roughly the fifth time where you have a situation of loss of commotion and upheaval. And inserted into the room comes a prophet of God. It's sort of a pattern at this point where a prophet just comes unawares, unexpectedly into the midst of these people's stress and mayhem. And more than that, I love the prophet's message. It's a message that should have, and I don't know, perhaps there were some faithful Israelites in this room, I don't know. But it should have, and it should to us, reach all the way back into the annals of Israelite history with a promise that was reminiscent of the promises given to Moses and Joshua. Notice what he says. Thus saith the Lord, hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, Notice these words, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. That army that you see outside your city gates, that is so fearsome and you're weighed down by the the impending destruction that is just outside your doors. Guess what? That army I'm going to give into your hands. And you will be able to crush them as though they were one man, essentially. This is a promise, a guarantee of victory for Israel before they've even strapped on a sword or lifted a pinky finger. You have the triumph in this day. Talk about encouraging. Talk about a word needed in season. You can go to so many different passages, and I could list them, We could read them, but you could go to Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 7 and Joshua 10, and you will find verses exactly like this. Where Yahweh gives to his people the promise of victory prior to any battle happening. They've done nothing. And yet God says, deliverance is yours. But if that weren't even enough, what I love too is that God has a penchant for sort of uh, raising the need for faith, raising the tension. I think about Gideon. You know, he doesn't just whittle down his army from 30,000 to 300, he lets them and forces them to go into battle with lanterns and trumpets and torches. <laughs> It's not enough that he's going into battle with a very small fighting force. It's that they don't go into battle with weapons. At least give us like a knife God. And here something similar is happening. He's upping the tension. Notice what, how he does so in a very curious way. He's upping the knee for faith on behalf of his people. And Ahab said by whom? Who's going to do this? And he said thus saith the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, who shall order the battle? And he said, thou. Then he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces, and they were 232. And after he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, being 7,000. He have a 7,000 uh, manned army going up against a coalition of 32 different fighting forces. Doesn't seem like one that is going to be a very long battle. But I love even more is how the historian is detailing this defense force that's gonna march out in defense of Israel. Because four times he mentions those young men. Notice he says in verse 14, the young men of the princes of the provinces. He says the same thing in verse 15, and the same thing in verse 17, and the same thing in verse 19. He's trying to get your attention as to who is actually comprising this little force. These 232 young men of the princes of the provinces were servants. They were stewards. They were those who served the provincial leaders that made up the northern kingdom of Israel. They were aides. Which is to say... They were not trained soldiers. This isn't like, you know, uh, this isn't like Gideon picking 300 of the strongest fighting men. This isn't Leonidas picking 300 Spartans to go out in battle. This is 232 stewards, servants, marching in front of roughly 7,000 other Israelites. Doesn't seem like there would be uh, much in the way of victory for Israel. And such is the point. The prophet, and especially I would say Yahweh, through his prophet is making it very clear whose victory this would be. There would be no question in the aftermath of what's going to occur that the victory is Yahweh's alone. No one's else's. It's not Ahab's you know, uh, acumen, it's not his skill, it's not his tactics, it's not his ability to surprise. It's not even, as we'll see, it's not even ben drunkenness. It's Yahweh's authority. It's his sovereignty over this moment. And he says, I am the Lord. And precisely because I am the Lord, I'm going to show you just how authoritative I am. And that's what happens. Notice. This makeshift army it says. And they went out at noon. Verse 16. They go out to face Ben-Hadad. In the the Syrian coalition. Only to find what? Verse 16. But Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk. In the pavilions. He and the kings. And the 32 kings that helped him. You see here, again, we can add to this very annoying, if I might add, reputation of Ben-Hadad. Who just thinks himself so powerful that he doesn't have to lift a finger to do anything. In fact, he can carouse and drink himself drunk in the middle of the day. That doesn't matter. He's that much of a god. And so the young men, verse 17, of the princes of the provinces went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out and they told him saying, there our men come out of Samaria. And he said, Whether they be come out for peace, take them alive. Or whether they be come out for war, take them alive. I don't understand this fighting philosophy. <laughs> Maybe it's been Hedad's inebriation. He had one too many uh, drinks. And so now he says, Just take everyone prisoner. I don't, I, Whatever they're doing, just take them prisoner. <laughs> Which is, is a very foolish decision. He doesn't destroy his enemy. He just merely wants to detain them. And notice this ragtag bunch of Israelites. Ends up trouncing this Syrian army. Verse 19. So these young men are the princes of the provinces. <laughs> Again don't mistake who's leading this army. Servants. Stewards. They came out of the city. And the army which followed them. And they slew. Every one his man. And the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. <laughs> a sweeping victory for Israel. That defense force that, that cam, comes out, they uh, come out in the name of the word of the Lord, and they trounce this enemy that opposed them. A sweeping victory for Israel. And he has an untold embarrassment for Syria. How dare we let ourselves lose to a bunch of servants. And again, isn't this just, again, just a sidebar. Isn't this Yahweh's way? He loves, he delights to showcase the extent of his wisdom and power and might by utilizing very weak vessels. He does that with us. He does that with his, throughout his entire word. That's what he does. He utilizes very weak things to showcase what? The power of his grace and strength and wisdom and might. And I love that that's what he's doing here even in the midst of this history. But notice verse 22 because before they can celebrate... Another prophet, perhaps the same one, comes and basically says to Ahab and company that you you got to be watchful, better be wary, because in a year's time this fighting force is going to come up again. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go strengthen thyself and mark and see what thou doest, for at the return of the year the king of Syria will come up against me. Kind of a foreboding sense of this is all going to happen again. And and then so we return now to a really interesting scene in verse 23. Where Ben-Hadad and his group of Syrians they go back to their camp. And they try to figure out what happened. How did we lose? And here we're given a truly fascinating little, little glimpse into I would say pagan theology if you will. And how they understand this defeat. Notice. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him. Their gods, Israel's gods, are the gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. And the number thee an army like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. And we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice and did so. And it came to pass, at the return of the year, that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Interesting exchange. The Syrians are trying to brainstorm and, and figure out, where did we go wrong? What, what happened? How did we lose that battle? They assume it's all about geography. That's it. Israel, their God, he's a God of the hills. He's a God of the mountains. So of course we couldn't have won. Of course we couldn't have defeated him. Because we were on his territory. We were on their turf, so to speak. We need to bring them down out of the hills, out of the rocks, out of the mountains. Bring them out into the open plains. And of course, that's where our gods are way, they're way stronger there. So we're, that's what we'll do. You can see their, their superstition, their false theology drives them to making this very erroneous decision. And again, so the, uh, Ben-Hadad and his group, they, they come with a huge massive fighting force. This time, they're not marching on Samaria, they're marching on Aphek, a little bit different location. Yes, it's close to the Sea of Galilee. But what I love again, verse 27 is so, it's it's kind of beautiful. It's kind of beautiful to sort of prove what we've just talked about. God utilizing all of his authority through very weak and very sort of unassuming vessels. Notice how the historian describes the difference in size between Syria and Israel. And the children of Israel, it says, were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. <laughs> You can see the massive difference in size as the Syrians come over the ridge into the plain. It's like the whole countryside was filled with a Syrian army. It's just peppered everywhere like a swarm of ants coming down over the hills. And here, in contrast to that, you have two two little little flocks of sheep. That's that's what the Israels are like. Against this massive army, you have two little, little flocks of sheep. You can see again. God is making it very clear that he is a God of very unlikely odds. He loves to revel in impossible situations. Such like this one in which Israel finds themselves. So here are they marching. They're marching up and again, verse 28. Notice who shows up. Israel is despairing. Again, a a year's time, and here we have another conflict with which we have to engage ourselves, lose uh, family members, lose people that are precious to us. And notice who shows up. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, thus saith the Lord. Because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills but he is not God of the valleys therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Wonderful promise again. It doesn't matter how much you are being weighed down Israel. I'm a God who can overwhelm any type of opposition you face. And even though this army fills the countryside, I'm going to give them into your hand. And I think, I think this is even cool too because he's, you, can, you can kind of sense that Yahweh, God has sort of taken offense at what the Syrians have said. They said I was just God of the hills. I'm God of everything. I'm the God of the whole created universe. So I'm going to show them. I'm going to show you and show them. Just how far and sweeping and extensive my authority is. I'm not just God of the hills. I'm going to show. as it, That's what he says there. That ye shall know. That I am the Lord. I'm the authoritative one. My authority is not bound by geography. I'm the God, the sovereign authority, whose blessing and and power and might permeates every blade of grass, every grain of sand, and even the air that we breathe. That's how authoritative I am. So the battle breaks out. And just like the first time, Israel trounces Syria. Verse 29, and they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians and hundred thousand footmen one day, in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city, and there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left, and Ben hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber a slaughtering of their enemies Israel is able to achieve and this triumph is obviously God's. He gives it to them in decisive fashion with that very haughty, very braggadocious big bad Ben Hadad is now he reduced to just a very, very small beggar. Notice notice verse thirty one. They're, they're closed in, in this very inner room. They're, they're taking refuge from all of the surrounding Israelites, uh, coming and sweeping and slaughtering all his men. And notice it says, And his servants, ben hadad's said unto him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads, and go out to the king of Israel. Peradventure he will save thy life his advisors they tell him hey we've heard we've heard that Israel's kings are merciful they have a penchant for mercy so we should try and, and see if they'll just give us some kindness so they girded verse 32 sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said thy servant Ben-Hadad saith I pray thee let me live and he Ahab said is he alive he is my brother. Very curious exchange. Now Ahab is referring to Ben-Hadad. As his brother. Very weird. And his Ben-Hadad's advisors. Latch onto to that word. Notice verse 33. Now the men did diligently observe. Whether anything would come from him. And did hastily catch it. They caught this word. And they said thy brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said go ye bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him. And he caused him to come up into the chariot. And ben said unto him, The cities which my father took from thy father I will restore, and thou shalt make streets for thee in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him, and sent him away. A very sort of anticlimactic ending, is it not? At least to this portion of the narrative. But Hadad, hey this very mean, evil king, has come and made all these threats on Israel. Israel defeats them twice, and instead of wiping them out, as we would like to see in a really good movie where the bad guy gets his comeuppance, here the good guy and the bad guy come into an agreement with each other. They make a trade agreement, essentially hey we'll we'll give you back some cities that we took from you uh, from a long time ago and we'll we'll build some roads to make our economy stronger we'll just do some we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we have a good economic security for each other it sounds political sounds very much like Ahab was thinking very clearly about his foreign policy and i think what's lost in all of this narrative is the fact that Ahab never once listens to the words of God. This is the one. One. ben hadad is the one that was given to him in his hands by the Lord. And he let him go. <laughs> he let the enemy of the Lord out of his fingers. And then more than that he covenanted with him. He went into an agreement with him, And such is when we come to verse 35. And a very curious scene at the end of this chapter. You see, this whole thing, this whole chapter has been about Ahab. It's been about him and his response. His response to the authority of Yahweh. You see, that's what this little scene is about. We're introduced in verse 35 to that student of prophecy and he goes to his neighbor in the word of the Lord and he says, smite me, hit me in the face. And His neighbor says, no, I'm not going to. And he refuses, which is when our prophetic student here, he utters that very severe word of prophecy. Because you haven't listened to me and listened to the word of the Lord, you're going to be devoured by a lion. Appears harsh at first. But now hopefully it makes sense. Because he hasn't just rejected his friend's request to punch him in the face. He's rejected the authority of Yahweh. Speaking through his friend. They are both students of prophecy. And whereas the one guy thought he was doing his friend an act of kindness by not giving him a nice shiner in the face. Actually, he's just rejecting God's authority, which speaks through his friend. Such is why we have this very grave outcome. God's authority is that serious. God's authority is that momentous. God's authority is that sweeping. So he goes and again, and he finds another friend in verse 37 who does punch him in the face. And then he goes and he disguises himself as a soldier who has just returned from battle. And these are the verses that are really curious to me. He tells a parable. He tells... Maybe some people would like to say he tells a white lie. I don't know. It's a parable to me. It's a story that he uses to expose Ahab's fault. He says, thy servant went out into the midst of battle. So I'm in the middle of war and I was entrusted with another man to guard and keep. And if this other man goes missing, it means my life. And as it happens, I was busy, I was distracted. I looked here and there and he was gone. And you could hear the prophet seem to say, what should become of me? That's essentially what he's asking the king. Hey, how would you rule in this situation? What would your verdict be? And he says, you've, you've brought this on yourself. You've, you've done this to yourself. His words are, thyself hast decided it. You've dug your grave. Now you have to lie in it. And that's, that's when the prophet reveals himself. He wipes away the, the grit and the grime and the ash away from his face. And he reveals, actually, I'm a prophet of Yahweh himself. And he hastened and took the ashes away from his face. And the king of Israel discerned him that he was one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall be go for his life and thy people for his people. You see, the man who brought this judgment on himself was Ahab. He was the one who rejected the authority of Yahweh. And who was too busy by seeking to uphold his own authoritative word, his own power, his own way of doing things. That he had rejected and let go this one that God had given to him. Delivered into his hand for utter destruction. So Ahab brought this on himself. <laughs> It's the words of the prophet are Ahab's judgment turned back on him. You've brought this on yourself. It's almost like Nathan and King David in 2 Samuel 12, where, remember, Nathan is trying to expose David through that parable. And and David is like, yeah, we should get that guy. We should get him justice. And Nathan says, you are the man. And essentially, the prophet here is saying the same thing. You are this guy. And such is why Ahab goes away heavy and displeased. Because Yahweh's authority is proven way stronger than his own. It's sad to me that Ahab has been given these two emphatic revelations of the authority and might of Yahweh. Through these amazing victories. And yet he was like a toddler, plugging his ears saying, I can't hear you, I can't listen to you. He was only concerned about himself and he punted on the authority of Yahweh alone and clung to his own sense of power and might. And here again, I think this is what this text ushers us to consider. Whose authority are you listening to? Whose authority are you submitting to? Are you acting much like Ahab? And I think much like we all love to act like and we're determined and we are bound to be our own authorities. That's the human heart I would say. The human heart is bound and determined to be its own authoritative voice. Which doesn't work It just leads to destruction It leads to violence It leads to very wrecked lives When we are our own authorities We ruin lots of things Yet Even though we have annals And annals of history To prove that very thing We still go on singing those words It's the words Of a poem by William Ernest Henley It's called Invictus And the words in the last stanza, I think, perfectly describe the human heart. It goes like this, quote, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the human heart. I don't need anyone telling me what to do. I don't, I don't need anyone telling me how to operate. I'm my own authority. I'm my own master. I'm the own, the, my own captain. I'm my own savior. See, Ahab's very drastic decision to reject the authority of God reveals who was truly king of his heart. And it wasn't Yahweh. It was himself. This, I would say, is the stubborn sin of all human beings ever. That we think that we can be our own advisors. We don't need to surround ourselves with fellow wisdom. We can be our own masters. We can govern our lives how we want. We can be our own gods. And the only result of that is ruin. But what I love is that here, just right now, Even though Ahab had already made these decisions to go his own way, to do his own thing, to make his own decisions, who showed up time and a time and time again? Who showed up reminding him who was authoritative, who was truly God? Yahweh. Twice he shows up in unexpected fashion and he says, I am declaring this word in the word of the Lord so that you can know who truly is the Lord. How is God getting your attention this morning to remind you who is truly in authority? How is he showing up? Maybe you haven't discerned it. Maybe you haven't thought about it in that particular way before. But God, I would say definitively, is showing you, even in this present moment, who is authoritative, who holds sway over your days. It's not you. The one who rules over the entire universe, the one who spoke and worlds or formed is the one who also, yes, holds your distressing hours, your distressing days, your very depressing season. He holds that in the palm of his hands. That's how authoritative he is. That's how sovereign he is. That's how powerful he is. That's how mighty he is. He, he, he's the God who knows all the stars by their names. And he knows how many grains of sand are on our coasts, And he keeps count of how many hairs are in your head. That's Jesus' words in Matthew 10. And it's maybe an exaggeration, but I think not too at the same time. He's trying to get in our mind's eye. This is how authoritative your God is. There's nothing too big or too small for him. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that I can't bother God with this? It's too small. It's just you know a little, a little thing, a little trite thing in my life. He's too busy with other things. Or we think oppositely. That God is so involved with this particular situation. How can he be in control of what's going on in the larger scene? My friends, this is what this whole Passage. This is what this whole book is about. That God's authority cannot be confined to the hills or to the valleys. It's extensive over everything. Nothing is too powerful for him. Not even sin and death. See, this is where we get to the amazing thing. About this God who says, know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the one who has authority over everything. Guess what? For those who are his faithful, he exercises his authority for your benefit and mine. He's no despot. He's no tyrant. He is your savior. Who bends everything according to his will. Yes, even the idea of this God, this ruler, this authority. Who comes to earth to shoulder the weights of our sin. What does he say? <laughs> no one can take my life from me. I lay it down. <laughs> on behalf of my friends. Even in sin and death. He was exercising his authority even on the cross when nails were piercing his palms and blood was streaming down his side. He was exercising authority on behalf of those he loves. Even when all was seeming to go into disarray, he was saying, I am being delivered into your hands as your Savior. There is nothing, my friends, that is outside of his authority. There is not even a single minutest speck in the universe that he does not know about. He knows. He knows you. My friends, this is who your God is. He's an authoritative God. One that might strike fear in your heart, but it ought not, because He exercises His authority for your good. How is He showing that to you this morning? How is He proving that? How has He proved that over the last so many odd months? I know I keep referencing the recent months. I'll just say it that way. The weird, confusing time that this country has been in for the last couple of years. Even that is not outside of his control. To me, that might make you angry. Why didn't he do something to stop it? But what is he doing to us in it? What is he showing us about himself and about us in the midst of it? Because I say the same command, the same word that he gives to his prophet is the same word that he gives to us. Is that I'm doing this so that all may know that I am the Lord. I am God. There's no one beside me. I am the authoritative voice of the one who spoke and created everything. And I am the one by whom all things revolve and sustain and consist. This, my friends, is the gospel. It's the good news of God's authority for you. Let us pray.